About 100 years ago, 150 years ago, if you came to a church like ours, uh, it was likely that you would hear a sermon on the return of Christ. It was likely that you would hear a sermon on the end times and uh, full with the chronology of how exactly it's going to happen. You were likely to attend a prophecy conference, very popular at one time, lots of people involved. All the great leaders were involved somehow in the prophecy movement. But not so anymore. It's not our reality today. Now, of course, there were some uh, abuses of, of that in the past, of that future-centered Christianity. And, of course, there are some uh, problems with that that still go on in certain circles. But largely, we have transitioned and focused on the present, and I think at the expense of focusing on the future. There is a balance to be found there somehow where we can look into the future and remember that the Lord is coming and live in hope of that, live focused in anticipation of that, and yet still live in the present. However, in our culture today, our sermons are largely therapeutic, right? We're focused on the problems of right now. We want to help people right now, which isn't bad. It's, it's good. But we lose sight of what is yet to come. We are engaged in the problems of our culture right now, which is good. That's a good change for, for us evangelicals. And yet, we lose sight of the coming kingdom through Christ's return. So today, we look at the book of Zephaniah, which is all about the day of the Lord, the coming event of God. And we're going to look at it, and we're going to find hope that connects our present experience with our future prospects. So that's our goal today. We're going to look at Zephaniah this little book, Minor Prophet, with major message for us to hear today. So who was he? Who was this prophet, Zephaniah? Cool name, right? You might consider it for your boy. Well, who was he? Well, listen to verse 1 of chapter 1. This is how he introduces himself. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Emariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now you look at something like this and you say, this is longer than usually uh, prophets would introduce themselves with. This lineage is longer. It goes back to five generations. Why? The reason is because Hezekiah is very important. And so if you were related to somebody like Abraham Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt, for example, of course you would trace your genealogy back at least to them, right? If somebody would ask you about your family tree, you would at least tell them about your famous ancestor. And this is what's happening here. Uh, Zephaniah wants us to know that he's related to King Hezekiah, that he comes from that family, King Hezekiah. He was a righteous king, a godly king. There weren't that many righteous kings. He was one in Judah. He was the one that, that helped Israel return to the Lord, established good worship practices, restored the rule of the law of God, all those things that he did that people still remembered. And then, of course, Zephaniah tells us that he is ministering in the reign, the days of Josiah. Josiah was another righteous king, another godly king. And so notice how Zephaniah is positioning himself between these two righteous kings. Why? Well, because in between, there are two evil kings, Manasseh and Ammon. Those are bad kings, promoting pagan practices, not following the law of God, doing things like child sacrifice towards other gods. These are bad people that are leading the whole nation astray. So Zephaniah is right in the middle of that 
between the righteous past and now Josiah's reforms are taking place. He's supporting this new king. He wants to see Israel restored again to worship of the true God. And he gives them hope. This book is about hope. He's trying to help them process how they can yet become what they were under Hezekiah. That Josiah is a king to help them get there again. And this hope is very much connected with the future day of the Lord. Uh, For example, look at verse 7 of chapter 1. Zephaniah says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. This is where hope comes from, the day of the Lord that is near. Now, what is this day of the Lord? If you've read through the Bible, especially the prophets, but also the New Testament, you will know that this is a rich concept, that there's lots written about the day of the Lord, that books like Joel and Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah, they all deal with this coming day of the Lord. You will also know that the New Testament uses the same language and applies it specifically to the return of Christ. The day of the Lord becomes the day of the second coming. Something that the Old Testament hints at, the New Testament now explicitly teaches that this day of the Lord, this cataclysmic event where God's purposes will be fulfilled will happen at Christ's return. It has two aspects. There is a day of judgment. It's a day of punishment for God's enemies. But it is also a day of blessing, a day of restoration and vindication for God's people. We see both of those aspects in Zephaniah. And both of those aspects, both judgment and blessing, give us hope. And I will show you how. The day of the Lord also has two time frames. Now this is really important. If you've been confused about biblical prophecy, this is one of those things that really helps you read read those passages and understand them better. Usually when a prophet would prophesy, usually, there will be an immediate near fulfillment of what he's saying, and there will also be an ultimate fulfillment still coming much later. So a near fulfillment could be, for example, the fall of Nineveh. Nineveh was an enemy of Israel. And so when Zephaniah is prophesying, one of the prophecies of judgment in this very book is about Nineveh. Nineveh fell in 612 B.C., which was during the time of Zephaniah, right before he prophesied, during the reign of Josiah, so people knew that this is God judging the enemies of Israel. So there was a fulfillment in their time. The day of the Lord came in that way. But they also knew that not all of these prophecies were fulfilled in their time. There were others that are yet to be fulfilled in the future, in the ultimate, final way, and that will happen when the Messiah will come and set things right. So they're all looking towards the glory of the Lord, and yet they're recognizing that the Lord Lord is still doing things in their time. And there's those cataclysmic events that show us how the day of the Lord breaks into the history of humanity as days of the Lord happen even in their time. So for example, in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and on, Peter is preaching. And he's reading from Joel, and he's applying the language of last days and the days of the Lord to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit onto the church. Now, this is the day of the Lord coming to the church. 
that's not the final, ultimate day of the Lord that will happen when Christ returns. But it's an expression of God's purposes being fulfilled in a dramatic, cataclysmic way. And in this case, it is to bless the church, to vindicate his people, to restore them, and to give them power for ministry. So the Old Testament has these many fulfillments, and the New Testament has these many fulfillments, but everybody's looking toward the final, ultimate day of the Lord when Jesus returns in glory. So I'd like us to consider that. I'd like us to look forward and anticipate the ultimate day of the Lord. It will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of blessing. So that's our outline. Let's look at the day of judgment. Let's look at the day of blessing. And also, at the end, we'll try to wrap it up by seeing how that ultimate day of the Lord, of Christ's return, enters into our lives today, making it the day of salvation for us today. So the day of judgment, the day of blessing, and the day of salvation. That's our outline. Let's look at the day of judgment. Now, Taylor preached last week on judgment from the book of Nahum. I think he did a really good job. And so if you weren't here, if you didn't listen to it, go online, listen to it. He dealt with some of the philosophical arguments for why we should believe in the judgment of God as a doctrine from the Bible. I won't deal with any of that because I think Taylor did a good job covering that. But I will deal with our emotional response to an oracle of judgment like one we find in Zephaniah. I want us to wrestle with that. I want us to hear what Zephaniah is saying, and I want us to respond to it appropriately, deal with our emotions, figure out how we are to respond to it in our hearts. So let's read this oracle of judgment or this description of the day of the Lord. Verse 14 of chapter 1. I'll read it. You listen. See what your heart tells you. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. What do we do with a text like that? Most of us are believers, right? We trust the scriptures. How do you respond to it? Not philosophically, but emotionally. What should you feel? How would we wrestle with an oracle of judgment? God's revelation saying that there will be a day of complete destruction, a day of darkness, when creation will be judged by their creator. What do we do with that? Well, some believers simply avoid reading those passages. They avoid thinking about the judgment of God, and they focus on other prophecies, other attributes. 
Others try to marginalize it, try to, try to in some way soften it or, 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 uh, or try, to, try to not emphasize it as much so it becomes sort of a part of the teaching, but they never really wrestle with it. Some uh, try to, to see it as applying to another time or maybe other people. So it's not really a word for us. It's a word for the Old Testament people. It's something that already took place. It's something that God used to do, but he doesn't anymore. And so we marginalize it in that way. Now, I don't think all those strategies of making this teaching smaller really help us. I think the right strategy is to make it as big as it is in Scripture, as pervasive as it is in Scripture, to allow your heart to wrestle with it, to take it personally, and, in fact, to draw hope from it. Let me walk you through the emotional response of the prophet to this, and thus normative for all believers. What is the appropriate response to this kind of description of the day of the Lord? And the appropriate response is sorrow. It's weeping. It's wailing. It's grief. Because God is judging all of his creation. You see, this is not a local judgment. This is a universal judgment. Look how it's described. Verse 2 of chapter 1. God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is universal. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. He's using language of creation, except he's reversing it. He's going backwards. In fact, the order of creation from Genesis 1 is reversed here. And just like God created everything out of nothing in a particular order by his power, now, Zephaniah says, he threatens to bring everything back to nothing in the reverse order by his power. This is important because what we see here is God judging his creation. And our response to that is verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Yes, we must argue philosophically for the judgment of God, and there are excellent arguments for it. Yes, we, we must show that this doctrine is biblical, that it's Christian, but we must also fall silent before the Lord God who is about to judge his creation. The appropriate emotional response to hearing an oracle of judgment, especially as universal as this one, is grief, is weeping, is wailing. And you see that language in the book of Zephaniah. Deal Moody said, I must not preach hell unless I preach it with tears. I must not preach hell unless I preach it with tears. And so I say we must also not contemplate the doctrine of God's judgment unless we weep over God's fallen creation. What was once beautiful, created by God reflecting his beauty, has now become ugly. 
what, what was now reflecting the image of God himself has been marred to almost beyond recognition. What was once intact has unraveled. And so we look at it when we hear God threatening judgment on his creation and we must weep because something so valuable to God is now threatened to be destroyed. There needs to be present sorrow over the future judgment of creation. We must feel that. You see, even if we can justify this in our minds, our hearts still need to be engaged, and we must feel the sorrow over God's creation. You look at chapter 2 of Zephaniah, and we won't look at it in detail, but it's a list of nations to be judged. There are thousands and hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people that are affected by this. And God is saying, I will judge this people, and this people, and this nation, and this nation. And it's a list. How do we respond to that? We grieve over it. And notice that he doesn't start with the nations. That these oracles of judgment do not come to the nations first. They come to God's people first. So as universal as this pronouncement is, it's also very much personal to us. Now look at verse 4. This is the first specific expression of God's judgment. Having established that all of creation is going to be judged, the next group that is addressed before the nations are addressed are God's people. Verse 4 of chapter 1, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God's threat of judgment is first addressed to the religious community. Those who are considered to be God's own people. Friends, how easy it is for us when we talk about judgment to talk about other people first. Many Christians have no problem giving out oracles of judgment towards the terrorists, right? Towards the liberals, towards the gays. We all have those groups that not a big deal for us to extend judgment to them. But that's not the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is that the household of God is judged first. The oracle of judgment comes to Judah and Jerusalem and to the church first. So as universal as it is, and as we are, are sorrowful about all of creation, now the focus shifts on ourselves, and we need to take it personally. And now we have to wrestle, at least emotionally, with how does this judgment affect me? Now this oracle of judgment is directed towards us. Not towards other people first, but towards us. There's a story in the Gospels in Luke 9 where Jesus travels with his disciples and, and they go to a Samaritan village and the Samaritan village rejects Jesus. They don't let him come in. They don't offer food for them and shelter. And so James and John say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They felt very powerful in that moment. There was a lot of arrogance there. And how does Jesus respond to that? He turns 
and he rebukes them. He rebukes the church. He rebukes the disciples before he deals with the Samaritans. You see, the oracle of judgment needs to come to us first. We, religious, moral, righteous people, how do we respond to this word of judgment? We take it to heart. We make it personal. We, we say to ourselves, the day of the Lord is near. I need to look at myself. Are, are we guilty of some of these sins that Zephaniah lists? Are these specific oracles of judgment directed towards Judah under Josiah? Do they apply to us today? I won't go through all of them, but I'll give you a couple examples. And I bet you that these apply to us. Yes, they apply to us. Some of them more than ever. How about verse 5 in chapter 1? The condemnation, the judgment goes to those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear to Milcom. Milcom was a pagan god, an idol. So the people would serve the Lord, but they would also serve someone else. They would swear by the Lord's name, but also they would swear by Milcom's name. It's called syncretism. When we combine the Christian faith with other faiths, with other cultural norms, with other worldviews, as if the Christian faith isn't enough and we need to supplement it with other things. You know, the fundamentalists, I think, were wrong, were misguided in simply forbidding card playing and dancing and those kind of things. I don't believe we should do that. But I think the reason why they were misguided is because they didn't look deep enough. It's not about the dancing. It's about the reason for dancing. It's not about the card playing. It's about the affections that are stirred when you play cards. That's what we need to look. And perhaps on this Super Bowl Sunday, right, maybe that's a good idea. To ask ourselves, is it really just a game for me, or have I been wrapped up in this for weeks? My affections have been divided. And I derive more pleasure from watching a game than from the Lord himself. If that is true, this is an oracle for our time. Many Christians have divided hearts and live syncretistic lives, worshiping God and yet worshiping other things as well. What about this oracle against complacency in verse 12 of chapter 1? The Lord says, At the time, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. This is an important message for our times against complacency. You know, there was a time when uh, normal church attendance would include Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and midweek Bible study. Maybe 20 years ago, <laughs> that was the case, not so long ago. Now normal attendance includes twice a month on a Sunday morning. Many of our believers are complacent. There's no drive to serve. There's no drive to give. Young people are not going into missions. Young people are not giving towards missions. Every missions organization will tell you that they're relying 
on the donations of the retired people. Because those are the people who understand the value of missions. In my own ministry, I feel like I've been on a search for serious men. Women are, seem to be a lot more serious in my ministry than men. But many men take their obligations to the Lord and to the church very, very lightly. Is this not a word for our times? Yeah. The Lord is saying, you can't be complacent. I will find you out as a person with a lamp going around the city looking for the complacent men. I think that applies to us as well. Unless you think that I'm preaching to you only, in verse 3 of chapter 3, another oracle towards God's people, there is a condemnation of the abuse of leadership. It says her officials, so Judah's officials, Jerusalem's officials, within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. This is directed towards me, other pastors, elders of churches, leaders in the community. Have we become fickle, treacherous men, profaning what is holy, taking things lightly, doing violence to the law, changing God's standards for living? Yeah, that's a problem. I'm not just talking about scandals. That, there's enough of them, right? It seems like every time you turn around, some pastor falls in a spectacular manner facilitated by Twitter. It just happens all the time. But it's not just that. It's, it's pastors who take advantage of their congregations. There are so many stories of oppressive, abusive leadership in the church. Right? God's people are hurt by that. People are turned away from the faith. We profane what is holy. We do violence to the law. That's another message for us. Now, you look at these pronouncements, right? And, and you say, I thought this was about hope, right? We started with hope. Where is hope? I feel bad about this. I feel sad. Yes, I feel the sorrow over God's judgment. But where is hope here? Well, the hope comes in our response to that. And these pronouncements of judgment are inherent promises of repentance of a change, of a better life with the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that there are two kinds of sorrow, two kinds of griefs. There is one that leads to death, and there's one that leads to life through repentance. And so we can respond to these oracles of judgment in repentance that leads to life. For us, because God wants you to live a different life before him, for his own people, but also for the nations, which is why we should do missions, of course, which is why we should tell the gospel to our neighbors, of course, because it's not just the oracle of judgment that goes to them, but a promise of repentance, an opportunity to turn from their ways and embrace the Lord Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do this just his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, 
Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. This present sorrow over future judgment can and must produce repentance. We must not talk about God's judgment without also extending God's offer of forgiveness and restoration to others and, yes, to yourself. Because this oracle of judgment comes with the purpose of disciplining you towards a better life with the Lord. And so take this to heart. Take it personally. Engage with these oracles of judgment. Now let's talk about the day of the the Lord as the day of blessing. This is going to be more explicitly hopeful, but we do have to start with judgment, of course. Now on to blessing. Present sorrow over future judgment now gives way to present joy at future blessing. Verse 14 of chapter 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The oracle comes to God's people and saying, there are blessings that are coming to you. Rejoice over those blessings now. Do you see the intersection of future and present in hope? God is saying you can be hopeful now because of what promises are about the future. And so there's a universal blessing that is promised to go along with the universal judgment that we already considered. Nations will be converted and will worship the Lord on the day of Christ's return. This is the same image that we find in Revelation 5. People gathered from all sorts of tribes and nations and worshiping the Lamb. Verse 9 of chapter 3. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. So the judgment at the Tower of Babel is reversed. And people who used to be divided through speech now are connected and united again through pure speech, language of worship and adoration towards God. That's the universal restoration that is promised. There's also a personal blessing that goes along with the personal judgment that we looked at a few minutes ago. God's people will be particularly blessed. You and I will be particularly blessed by the Lord at the day of Christ's return. Just like we are to take God's judgment personally, we are to take these promises of blessing personally too. Let me highlight a few. And please just listen and rejoice and be encouraged by what the Lord is yet to do for us. Verse 15 of chapter 3. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Meaning there is complete forgiveness. There is final and ultimate pardon that is waiting for us at the Lord's return. Yes, we know it now through Christ. Yes, there's confidence in His forgiveness now. But there will be no barriers. There will be no doubts at a point of His return. Verse 19 of chapter 3. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. There's a promise of protection and vindication. There are many things in our lives today that are left unresolved. 
You don't know who was at fault in that particular conflict. Relationships still need to be restored. There are things that are left unsaid, right? Somebody has wronged you, and they don't seem to be paying for that at all. But on the day of the Lord's return, all of those things will be set right. There will be complete vindication for his saints, for his people. You don't need to worry about vindicating yourself now. You can simply defer to the Lord's blessing at the day of the Lord. There's a promise of restoration in verse 20. When God says, I restore your fortunes before your eyes. I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Friends, nothing will be wasted. Nothing will be lost forever. But all will be restored in full to God's people at the day of the Lord. Now, how does that bring hope to you today? Like this. If you are in a season of your life where you're wondering how God is using any of this for His glory, at the day of the Lord you will know. And all of that will be restored. All the fortunes will be restored before your very eyes. If you are in a time of depression, if you are in a time of failure, if you are in a time of tremendous uncertainty or forced passivity, where you feel like you're not making a difference in anyone's life, including yours, you're not serving the Lord the way you want to, the way you should, please remember that on the day of the Lord, it will be restored. It will be redeemed. If you have sacrificed greatly for the Lord in this life, please remember that at the day of the Lord, everything will be restored. Nothing will be lost. I saved the best promise for last. And you may be used to it right now, but I frequently say this is the best passage in all of Scripture. I think this one is the best passage in all of Scripture. Verse 17. Memorize it. Rest in it. Read it when you're discouraged. Verse 17 of chapter 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When Christ returns, the Lord, without any barriers of sin or broken creation, will fully express his love for you. You may have doubts now. Your experience of the Lord's love is partial now. But there will be a day when you will completely realize and perfectly know just how much the Lord loves you. Matthew Henry said, The great God not only loves his saints, but he loves to love them. Is pleased that he has pitched upon these objects of his love. He's saying that it's not just that he loves you, but God enjoys loving you. God delights in a relationship with you. God's emotions are engaged when He is with you. The promise here is that there will be a full realization of that on the day of Christ's return. God will exalt over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you. He will quiet you with His love. As a mother 
who rocks her baby, right? And, you can, and if you've ever done that, or a father, if you've ever done that, and you've looked at the baby's eyes, right before they fall asleep, there's a complete rest. They have been quieted by the love of their parents. There is complete confidence in the relationship. They feel perfectly safe. That's a glimpse of our eternal relationship with God. When we will feel that in His presence. When He would be able to express what He feels towards us by quieting us with His love. But it's not going to be all quiet, is it? He will rejoice over us with loud singing. Friends, when God gets loud, right, there's no other sound that can drown that. God will loudly proclaim his love for you. God would loudly sing over you and rejoice and dance over his people. Dwell on this. This is what's coming for us. We know it in part now, but it would be completely realized on the day of the Lord. God will be able to perfectly express his joy at loving you. And you will be able to perfectly feel joy at being in his presence. Does that give you hope? It should, right? It's not just all about the present. Yes, it is, but there's more to it. There's a future promise of blessing. And as we look towards that, it gives us hope. It gives us hope in our present circumstances because we can have present joy, maybe even in your messed up circumstances today, present joy at future blessing. Well, I need to wrap it up really quickly and talk about the day of salvation because this great day of the Lord that is yet coming, the ultimate and final return of Christ and God's purposes being perfectly fulfilled, is now breaking into our lives today. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 quotes from Isaiah. Quotes from Isaiah who's talking about the day of the Lord. And Paul says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Remember how there are different fulfillments. There's the ultimate fulfillment, but there's also fulfillments on the way. These dramatic actions of God. Conversion is one of those days of the Lord that happens in our lives. And Paul is saying it could happen now. The day of the Lord can happen with you now. How? Because of another day. A day when Jesus was crucified for your sins. A day when when Jesus was raised from the dead, offering blessing to you. Jesus who took all of the judgment of God on himself, the universal judgment, the personal judgment now directed to him in our place. Having risen from the dead, offering universal and personal blessing to you now. And by faith, we take hold of that. So when you read these oracles of judgment, they are not final to us. They're not condemning to us. They are disciplining. They're reminders of what God wants for us. Reminders of his grace for repentance. Remind us of his great, great desire for us. And so we look at Jesus at the cross, at the judgment 
and the blessing of God intersecting like the two beams of the cross. And we say, today is the day of my salvation. God's great work is breaking into my life today. And if you're not a believer, today, this day, the Super Bowl Sunday, the Snowmageddon Sunday, is your day of salvation. How cool is that? That we can look forward to it, but we don't have to wait for it to happen. These things are happening now. The power of God is brought into your life right now. And the day of salvation is today. This is a time for us to come to the table and hear the word of judgment. You see the body broken, the blood spilled for us. But we also hear the word of blessing in the gospel. This is a time to look forward to Christ's return where all the promises will be realized perfectly and forever. So let's come to the table. I'm going to pray and then we're going to come to the table together and rejoice at the Lord's coming.